Section 11 of The Day Before Yesterday This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Day Before Yesterday by Richard Middleton Section 11 The Magic Carpet There were two rugs in the library, and for some time we used to dispute the vexed question of their relative merits. Aesthetically there was something to be said for both of them. The rug that stood by the writing-desk from which father wrote to the newspapers was soft and furry. Indeed, it was almost as pleasant a couch as the sofa with the soft cushions in the drawing-room, which was taboo. Moreover, it lent itself very readily to such fashionable winter sports as bear-hunting, providing as it did a trackless prairie, a dangerous marsh, or the quarry itself as the adventure required. The joys of the other rug were of a calmer kind, and were perhaps chiefly due to its advantageous position before the fire. It was pleasant to toast oneself on a winter evening and trace with idle fingers the agreeable deviations of its pattern. Sometimes it might be the ground plan of a make-up city, with forts and sweet shops and palaces for our friends. Sometimes it would be a maze, and we would pursue with bated breath the vaulted passages that led to the dread lear of the Minotaur. But such plots as these were of passive rather than active interest. Reviewing the argument dispassionately, Fenimore Cooper may have had a slight advantage over Nathaniel Hawthorne. Bear-hunting may have been a little more popular than the dim excitements of Greek myth. But while the discussion was at its height, there dawned in the east the sun that was to prove fatal to Perseus and the deer-slayer alike. I do not know from which of our uncles the Arabian Nights first came to an enraptured audience, but I am sure that an uncle must have been responsible for its coming, for as a gift it was avuncular in its splendor. We quickly realized that the world had changed and took the necessary steps to welcome our new guest. The old lamp in the hall that had graced the illicit doings of pirates and smugglers in the past was thenceforward the property of Aladdin. A strange bottle that had been Crusoe's served to confine the unfortunate genie, and with quickening pulses we discovered that in the fireside rug we possessed no less a treasure than the original magic carpet. I must explain that we were not like those fortunate children of whom Miss Nesbitt writes with such humorous charm. To us there fell no tremendous adventures. We might polish Aladdin's lamp till it shone like the moon without gaining a single concrete acid drop for our pains. But the Arabian Nights gave us all that we ever thought of seeking either in books or toys in those uncritical days, a starting point for our dreams. And this, I take it, is the best thing that a writer can give a child, and it was for lack of this that we considered the works of Lewis Carroll silly, while finding one of the books of Miss Molesworth, I wish I could recall its name, a masterpiece of fancy and erudition. So when the din of the schoolroom did not suit my mood, or the authorities were unduly didactic, I would slip away to the twilit library and guide the magic carpet through the delicate meadows of my dreams. The fire would blaze and crackle in the grate and fill my eyes with tears so that it was easy to fancy myself in a sparkling world of sunshine and from the shadows of the room little creatures would creep out to touch my glowing cheeks with cool, soft fingers, or to pluck timidly at the sleeve of my coat. I did not endeavor to give these shy companions of the dark any definite place in my universe. 
Their sympathetic reticence was reassuring in that room of great leaping shadows, and I was glad that they should keep me company in the blackness, a thing so terrible when I woke up at night in my bed. Sometimes, perhaps, I wondered how they could bear to live in the place where nightmare was, but for the rest I accepted their society gladly and without question. There was plenty of room on the carpet for such quiet fellows, and if they liked to accompany me on my travels, I, at least, would not prevent them. It did not occur to me at the time, as it certainly does now, that I should never again be so near to fairyland as I was then. I was inclined to be skeptical concerning the actual existence of the supernatural, though I recognized that a judicious acceptance of its theory set a new kingdom beneath one's feet for play. And it is only now that I realize how wonderfully vivid my dreams were, with what zest of timid life the little shadow folk thrilled and trembled round me. It is true that I remained conscious of my normal environment. The fire, the dark room, and the bookcases were all there, and even a kind of quiet sense of the world beyond the door, the hall and the passages, and my brothers and sisters at their quarrels. But it was as if these things had become merely an idea in my mind, while my feet were set on the pleasant roads of a new world. The thing that I had hoped became true, and the truth that I had been taught lingered in my mind only as a familiar story, a business of second-hand emotions, neither very desirable nor very interesting. The little folk gathered and whispered round me in the dark, and there was full day in the world that was my own. It was hard to leave that world for this other place, which even now I cannot understand. But when some errant Olympian or righteously indignant brother had dragged me from my lair, I did not attempt to defend myself from the charge of moodiness. I had no words to tell them what they had done, and I could only stand blinking beneath the light of the gas in the hall, and endeavor to recall their wholly tiresome rules and regulations for the life of youth. Dimly I knew that my right place was before the fire in the library, and I wondered whether the little folk could use the magic carpet without me, or whether they stayed expectant in the shadows, like me, a little lonely and a little chill. But in those days moodiness was only a lesser crime than sulkiness, and I had perforce to fold up my fancies and pass, an emotional bankrupt, into the unsympathetic world of the playroom. Tomorrow, perhaps, the magic carpet might be mine again. Meanwhile, I would exist. Peter Pan has asked us a good many times whether we believe in fairies. It is, of course, a matter of faith, to be accepted or denied, but not to be discussed. For my part, I think of a little boy nodding on a rug before the fire on many a winter's evening, and I clap my hands. Gratitude could do no less. End of section 11. Recording by Philip Gould.